Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Mafedon. Thanks for tuning in. Since Governor Healy's inauguration, her support and advocacy for more affordable housing has been at the forefront of her administration goals. And last Thursday, Massachusetts was one step closer to a big turning point. One day after her State of the Commonwealth address, Governor Maura Healy and other state leaders testified before the Joint Committee on Housing in support of the Affordable Homes Act proposed legislation that will be a game changer for Massachusetts residents in need of affordable housing. We've never had a moment like this in the history of our Commonwealth where housing is so out of reach for so many people. Through capital investments, tax credits, and policy tools, we can create or preserve 70,000 new homes. We can extend first-time homebuyer supports to thousands more families. We can reduce barriers to housing production and give communities more tools to develop housing where they need it. We can build affordable homes at every income level and repair our long-neglected public housing. We can fund supportive housing for seniors, veterans, people with disabilities. That's what this legislation is designed to do, bring down costs for everyone. If approved, the act will fund the building of more than 40,000 homes and will improve more than 27,000 existing homes, widely increasing housing options for low-income individuals and families. The governor's proposal is a tremendous step forward. It's $4 billion for, to preserve and build affordable housing for the population. We obviously need it. Uh, it's, a very, it's important that it passes. It has some other provisions that are important like allowing localities to raise the fees on real estate transfers by all the big office and commercial people, that will generate $100 million a year for Boston alone. Uh, there's eviction ceiling proposals, public housing repairs, a lot of things that tenants really care about. So we have 43,000 units of public housing across the state of Massachusetts, and right now it needs over $8 billion of work. And the units, because they're in such poor condition, we're not able to release people, and people are sitting on waiting lists, waiting to get into these units that need all of this rehabilitation. So the $1.6 billion that's in this bond bill will make a good down payment towards, towards this issue. Soon-to-be-shared data from UMass Donahue Institute shows that over the next five years, the Affordable Homes Act will produce over 30,000 new jobs and $25 billion in economic impact and will bring in $800 million in tax revenue. One of the areas of the Affordable Homes Act that we are incredibly excited about is the $150 million for public housing decarbonization. That will allow our public housing authorities to increase the safety, the health, the livability, and the climate resiliency of those buildings and really make them more future-proof uh, and ready for, for, for tomorrow's climate. So we're, we're very excited about that. Residents have been living with underfunded conditions in state public housing for decades. Folks are living with asbestos and mold, their sewage backing up into bathtubs, really inhumane conditions. And this bill will go, uh, is a big step forward for addressing that underfunding uh, and helping families, seniors, veterans, people with disabilities all across the Commonwealth. The Affordable Homes Act is only one of the many solutions to rising rent and housing prices. And the governor's most recent venture aims to support the many neighborhoods of Boston, starting with renovations of a church in Jamaica Plain. 
On Monday, city and state leaders gathered in Hyde Square to celebrate the adaptive reuse project that will transform the now vacant Blessed Sacrament Church into low-income housing, as well as announce new subsidies and low-income housing tax credit support for 25 more projects in 19 communities. These moves will equip Boston to serve individuals and families in need of affordable housing. Housing is the biggest crisis, but Blessed Sacrament is such a pillar in this community that I'm so excited that this is one of the developments at a historic church in Jamaica Plain that is going to be completely affordable for people to live in a safe, healthy housing unit and so that they be able to remain in the neighborhoods that they love. So this is how it's going to change lives. Today we celebrate exactly what those tax credits do, building or preserving more than 1,900 new homes. That means more housing for our workers, that means more good jobs, that means stronger communities, and even more economic prosperity. This is housing our communities desperately need. 92% of those homes will be affordable. And of those homes, affordable homes, 25% are being built for extremely low-income residents and those transitioning from homelessness. Next to be converted into apartments are an old building on 135 Dudley Street and an empty lot located at 775 Huntington Ave. Last fall, as part of a $1 billion tax relief signed by Governor Healy, Massachusetts raised a low-income housing tax credit to $60 million annually, an increase from the previous year by $20 million. This low-income tax credit increases the incentive for housing developers to build and rent more affordable housing by providing capital for the construction, acquisition, and sustainable repairs of housing for low-income residents. Affordable housing is not just for extremely low-income people anymore. With the success of the Commonwealth, more and more people across income bands are experiencing difficulty in finding places to rent. And this will make sure that a wide range of people are able to have access to different types of units, and it's all across the Commonwealth. We're in an unprecedented housing crisis in the greater Boston area and Massachusetts, and what we really need is new affordable homes for thousands of low and moderate income families across the state who are in desperate need and they are paying too much in rent now. So these affordable homes that the governor announced today will help lower the cost of housing, keep people in their communities, but it's also going to create important jobs um, in the Commonwealth. The availability of affordable housing is crucial in supporting our diverse communities and ensures that individuals from various socioeconomic backgrounds can live and work in the city of Boston. Officials are eager to make home a standard for all, and it all begins with the passing of the Affordable Homes Act. Charleston students were ready for liftoff after speaking with NASA astronauts who are living among the stars. Tuesday was an out-of-this-world experience for the young students of Harvard-Kent and Warren-Prescott schools. How often do you get to speak in real time to an astronaut in space? Hi, my name is David. Uh, my question is, on the International Space Station, I heard that you cannot eat regular food like down here on Earth. What do you eat instead? That's a great question and one of my favorites. I actually have some of the food that we eat here. Um, our meals come in a couple different ways. Um, one is these green packets of food 
that you just pop in the oven and heat up pretty easy. The other main kind of food we have is rehydratable meals. For these, you just add water. We have a lot of tortillas, which we love. And then, of course, all sorts of different kinds of drinks, which all come in um, bags like this one I have here. This is some water. These Charleston fourth through sixth graders did just that, thanks to a collaboration with NASA, Boston Public Schools, and the Neural Systems Group and Center for Space Medicine Research at Mass General Hospital. Astronaut Laurel O'Hara, currently in orbit 420 kilometers above our planet, felt within reach, answering questions on training and adjusting to life with no gravity. I thought it was really cool that she gets to talk to us from space. It was uh, pretty fun because we saw her floating and that was funny. It makes me want to go into space and be an astronaut because, I mean, the views are nice. She takes photos of them. It's just really nice. I thought it was kind of cool that they had to, like, that the gravity was, like, um, it was, like, zero gravity, so they had to use, like, bars on their feet to stay, like, put. From these researchers, they learned about the physiology, psychology, and behavioral changes needed to venture into space. So today we're here with the students from Harvard-Kent Elementary and Warren Prescott School to demystify science, to bring what is happening up on the International Space Station with the astronauts to these kids who are here on Earth. Part of this process is to go into biomedicine, to go into neuroscience, psychology, physiology, and the things that they'll be learning have to do with um, you know, what, is, what happens to bodies in zero gravity? What happens to spending long times in space and, and potential risk factors that include radiation, that include not getting a lot of sleep, uh, and that include having really packed schedules and how to, how to manage that. And all of these things have practical applications for not just science, but also what we do with ourselves on Earth. BPS educators were just as excited for the real-life exposure for their students. Today our students had an excellent opportunity to connect with astronauts in space currently. And so thanks to our partners MGH and NASA and connecting with the Boston Public Schools, our students got a chance to ask questions of an astronaut while they're having that lived experience of being in the, in the galaxy. Um, and more so than that, our students formulated the questions, connecting the learning that he did in classrooms to what do they want to know about this career path, how it inspires them to want to be astronauts themselves. Kids talking to astronauts is a really great opportunity. They uh, it's, it make something that's been abstract their whole lives, like realistic. They Instead of just reading about it, seeing in movies, they get to actually see them and ask them questions and, and about what it's actually life, like to be it, living in the life of an astronaut. Um, so it really just makes anything more uh, obtainable for them and, and something that maybe one day they, they, they can actually imagine themselves being. The life of an astronaut is not easy. It requires intelligence, discipline, curiosity, and adaptability. But Tuesday's glimpse gave Charleston students a path to making a dream a reality. The City of Boston Reparations Task Force and Mayor Michelle Wu have announced the selected researchers to document the history and legacy of slavery in Boston. The selected research teams will produce a comprehensive report documenting the city's role and ties to the transatlantic slave trade and institution of slavery.
Gathering this group of qualified researchers will help in completing the first phase of the task force work, while building the foundation for the task force recommendations on local reparations. The eight selected researchers come from Tufts University and Northeastern University, with each respective team studying a different time period in Boston's history. The Tufts University team will cover research from years 1620 to 1940, while the Northeastern team will cover 1940 to the present day. If you'd like to join the next Reparations Task Force meeting and meet the awardees and task force members, the next meeting is Tuesday, February 6th at 6.30 p.m. Please visit boston.gov forward slash reparations for more details. Statistics from the CDC show that 11,500 women are diagnosed with cervical cancer every year, and about 4,000 die. Many women are not aware that cervical cancer is preventable and a treatable disease if proactive steps are taken within their health. Dr. Dana Cohen, a respected physician, author, and authority in women's health, joined us on Zoom to share valuable new insights for women during Cervical Cancer Awareness Month. Here's our conversation. What are some of the top misconceptions that women have about cervical cancer? Um, I think the first would be that it only affects older women. It affects women of all ages. Um, the second would be that only people with multiple partners can get cervical cancer. And the third big one is that it's not preventable, as it is. Hmm. And as we talk about screenings, for instance, how important are regular screenings for cervical cancer? Who exactly needs them? And is there such a thing as an age where you don't need them anymore? So screenings are crucial, um, absolutely crucial, because early detection of cervical cancer absolutely saves lives. Um, and, uh, and really, it's cancer screening starts at the age of 21. Um, anybody who's sexually active, it goes through lifelong screenings. Um, there is an age, I don't know what the new recommendations are. I think the cutoff age is maybe 65 or 70, but, it, but it's, it's very individualized. I think you have to ask your gynecologist too, because um, you know, it's, uh, it, may, it may not even be, it may be even older than that, depending on the person. So it's, it's up to your gynecologist to, to go through that with you. And then in the realm of holistic health practices, for instance, are there any specific uh, lifestyle changes or dietary recommendations, alternative therapies, for instance, that you'd suggest to women who are looking to reduce their risk of cervical cancer? Thank you so much for asking. This is my joy to talk about because um, we know that cervical cancer is caused by HPV, human papillomavirus. So it's a virus um, and it is directly related to your immune system, how robust your immune system, because most of us can clear the virus if we have a good, healthy immune system. So diet and lifestyle plays such a huge role in how our immune systems function. Um, so I'm gonna give you three easy things to talk about to, to help. Um, and the first would be hydration. Uh, I, I wrote a whole book on hydration. It's called Quench. And I always say it's the first step in treating and preventing chronic disease. We have to learn how to hydrate. Super important. Um, the second would be supplementation. So if I have a patient that comes in with a, an already diagnosed, you know, a positive HPV, she's, she has the diagnosis, 
Right now, all regular medicine has to offer is a watch and wait. So we're going to wait six months and repeat the pap smear. That's unacceptable to me because we have six months to really work on our immune systems, help our body heal itself. Um, and two of the most important supplements, I think, is one is a, is a medicinal mushroom called AHCC, very powerful supplement that's been shown in human studies to help clear that virus faster. And the second is folic acid. People who are diagnosed with HPV um, more often have low levels of folate or folic acid in their blood. Um, so taking a folic acid supplement and also a little vitamin C. And then the third thing is stress. We know that stress kills. So it's so important to get your stress under control, especially if you've gotten that diagnosis. And that could mean anything. That can mean talk therapy. That can mean massage therapy. That can mean yoga, meditation. You have to figure out what that is. But I'll be honest, everybody knows when they're stressed. And um, and we need to get that under control, especially in the in light of a, of a diagnosis like HPV and a positive pap smear. So I'll be filling up my canteen of water and doing my downward dog uh, just to get prepared. And uh, Perfect. what is your message for, for women about practicing uh, safe sex at any age? Um, HPV is absolutely a sexually transmitted uh, disease. So it is, and it still is ever as important as it always has been. Safe sex is super important um, and it, it helps protect you. It's not, um, it, you know, unfortunately HPV is rampant and it's extremely virulent. So it's very contagious um, and safe sex makes a huge difference. And in regard to healthcare providers, for instance, I know sometimes people can have reservations about speaking to their doctors or feeling that they're not being heard. What steps can people take to be more proactive in advocating for themselves in terms of screenings, prevention, and comprehensive healthcare resources? Um, I think, so first of all, I think there's a ton of resources online. There's a great um, organization called um, ASHA, American Sexual Health Association. Um, a lot of information on that website. Um, there is, for people who can't, um, who don't have, an, or are uninsured or underserved, there is a, um, the National Breast and Cervical Cancer Early Detection Program. Um, they're from the CDC, they offer services to people who can't afford it or don't have insurance. Um, Planned Parenthood, regardless of what you think, they offer these services. So there are services out there. Um, and I think you have to, you know, if you're not asking your doctor, um, you, you're not doing your, anybody any favor. So you just need to have a very open conversation with your doctors and your partners and, and your girlfriends. So I think it's important that I'm happy that we're having this this month of cervical cancer awareness because I think it does bring awareness to to even doctors. It changes doctors' minds when there's exactly what we're doing right now. When the media starts to get involved, everybody's ears perk up. And although cervical cancer affects women, uh, you do talk about how it's important to get men involved in the conversation. Can you talk about how men can help normalize conversations about women's health and be allies in addressing a disease which is often overlooked? So, well, let's just take a step back because cervical cancer is caused by HPV and HPV is not a women's health and uh, only a women's health problem. It's also a men's health problem. Um, so it is super important that they get involved and aware um, because it can cause other cancers like throat and esophageal cancer and anal cancer. So it's, um, it's very important that they're involved in the conversation. Um, but 
like everything else, your partners, um, they are our partners. So um, we need to have them involved and, um, and, and especially with women's health and other things like menopause and those kind of things, men need to understand what we're going through. What they went through in puberty or even women went through in puberty, the same thing happens in menopause. So I think by having this conversation, opening it, opening it up to the norms um, is only helpful for, for everyone. And finally, where can our viewers go to learn more about some of these health tips that you share today? Um, so my website is drdanacohen.com. You can go to the cdc.gov and look for that um, National Breast and Cervical Cancer Early Detection Program. Um, those are a couple of, of good ones. Thanks for tuning in, Boston. As a reminder, you can stream or watch the news on demand at bnnmedia.org. Each episode will be rebroadcast at 9.30 p.m. and 11 p.m. on Xfinity Channel 9, Astound Channel 15, and Files Channel 2161. And make sure to check out our BNN HD Xfinity Channel 1072. You can also hear us on the radio Fridays at 7.30 and 9 p.m. and Monday through Thursday at 9 p.m. And now you can watch BNN News on the go with the Cablecast app. For BNN News, I'm Faith Amathodon. I'll see you next Friday.